I see there's a clock on this pulpit. It's rather large. It's not too subtle, you know. Thank you for your prayers. I want to read for you a New Testament text that pretty much corresponds in some way to the Old Testament passage that Pastor Angie read. This is from Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. You probably know this. This is uh, the second installment of the series that's called Trust Issues. Today I'm going to be talking about the, the call of Abraham and the call of the other disciples that are mentioned in this text I just read and how that might apply to us. So today I'm talking about God's particular callings to us in the overall context of being disciples who make disciples. God invites us to trust Him with our lives, and, and all that entails. Would you agree with that? Some of you are probably familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? All of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And how many of your ways should you acknowledge Him? All your ways acknowledge Him, meaning in every area of your life, in every, every dimension of life. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your steps. God invites us to trust Him with our lives, and He does this by, by calling us. I'd like to take a few moments this morning to do my best to unpack both the Genesis reading and the passage from, from Mark. In Genesis 12, 1 through 4, we get introduced to both God, known as Yahweh in this passage, and Abraham. If you had begun reading the Bible in Genesis 1 and you had been reading up till today's text, what would you have learned about God so far? You'd have, you'd have learned that He's the Creator. You'd, you'd have learned that, that He cares about a relationship with people. And He's also entrusted the stewardship of the earth to us. You'd have learned that he detests sin for what it does to his creation, and in particular what it does to people. One of the things I've been learning about sin in these last 46 years as a follower of Jesus is that, that sin always, always, always dishonors God. It always injures me when I sin. And by the way, there's usually collateral damage too. And sin always opens a door of opportunity to the evil one. God detests sin for what it does to people. Also, he he lets people face the consequences of their sin. Adam and Eve had to face spiritual death and the removal from the garden. Genesis 6, we learn that God permitted the flood. We learned that in the context of such consequences, God still has redemption in mind. As early as Genesis 3, He says the, 
the, he, he prophesies. He says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Looking ahead to Jesus, who is the seed of the woman. In Genesis 6, we see that God calls Noah to build an ark, picturing redemption for us. That's who he is. What do we know about Abraham? Called Abram in this text. Well, first of all, we know that history remembers Abraham as a friend of God, father of the Jews, father of the faithful. He's honored by Jews and Muslims and, and Christians as a great, a great man. Scripture teaches us in Genesis 11 that Abraham was, was born and raised in Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern Iraq, in the southeastern part of the country. Joshua 24.2 informs us that Abraham and his father worshipped idols, so in the technical sense they were actually pagans. Now let's look at some facts from the text about Abraham. God called Abraham, a pagan man, to join him on an adventure that would make Abraham's descendants the vehicle through which the blessing of salvation would come to the entire human race. If you're not familiar with the word salvation, know this. It is, it is a relational word. It implies that something's been broken between ourselves and our Creator, and God isn't happy with that situation, and He does everything He can to restore our relationship with God. Salvation is a word that's pregnant with meaning. We know that Abraham answered his call by obeying. We know that he left the security of his native land, his extended family, and even his father's estate. We know that he wasn't young. He's about 75. His call ended up requiring a lot of travel and big risks. The New Testament actually has a lot to say about Abraham, but I want to share one New Testament commentary about Abraham. This from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 8. It says, by faith... He obeyed. His obedience was predicated on faith. Now, faith, too, is a relational word. It's not merely about subscribing to various tenets. It's about connecting with God. That's the heart of the meaning of the word faith. Let's take a closer look at the passage from Mark 1. This passage introduces us to four men, two sets of brothers who became Jesus' followers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. Unlike Abraham, they, they weren't pagans. They were probably conscientious Jews. They were commercial fishermen. Like Abraham, they left everything. They left their livelihood and their family, which was, to them, security to follow the call, the call of Jesus. Here's seven thoughts I want to leave with you this morning. First is this. Consistent with these stories, and actually throughout Scripture, we learn that God takes the initiative in reaching out to us. 
God's not aloof. He's not indifferent. He cares very deeply about the entire human race, each person actually. Why does he do this? I'd submit to you for your consideration that he's incurably, God is incurably relational. I'd also go so far as to say that God's crazy about you. He's crazy about you. He's infatuated. He's love-smitten. You might never have thought of God that way. The Bible has a lot to say about God, and some of what I'm going to say to you is informed by the rest of Scripture. I, I'm sorry I can't help myself. I can't be limited to these passages only. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16, what God's essence is. It's not really an only identifying an attribute of God, one of the many things that are true of God. It's identifying the essence of God. And some of you know what it says. God is love. We know that there are attributes of God. God is holy. He's eternal, no beginning, no ending. He's everywhere present. He's all-powerful. He's patient. He's kind. But when the Bible describes God's essence, that is who God is to his very core, it says he's love. By the way, this isn't a sermon about things God can't do, but there are a whole bunch of things God can't do. One of them is he can't lie. It says he can't be exhausted. Another thing it says is he can't deny himself. In other words, God can't act in a way, can't act in a way that's inconsistent with his essence. He cannot. When the Bible uses the word love to describe God's essence, it uses the word agape. That's a particular kind of love. It describes, describes God's love, a love that is unconditional. Romans tells us, Romans 5 tells us, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. God's love is unconditional. He, he doesn't wait for us to get our act together. We also learn later in Romans, Romans 8, 38 and 39, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's, there's no deal breakers with God. I'll bet you've imagined that you have done something that's a deal breaker. At least some of you have wondered that to yourself, haven't you? God says, that's not my kind of love. Deal breaker. Uh-uh. No deal breakers with me. No deal breakers with God. God's love is unconditional. It's inexhaustible, and it's impartial. Jesus said in John 17, 23, the love with which the Father has loved me is the very same, excuse me, yes, the love with which he's loved me is the very same love with which he loves you. So God's love is unconditional and inexhaustible and impartial. That's why he does this. This is why he reaches out to us. This is why he calls us. 
another fact, another thought. He calls both the spiritually ignorant, people like Abraham, a pagan, and the devout. All need him, he calls all. A fourth thought. He does not merely want to use you for a mission, but just because you are who you are. Do you know that the first and primary calling of the Christian life is about experiencing the life of God's Son? Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.9. He said, God has called you into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. God has called you into the fellowship of His Son, into relationship, into union with Jesus. Jesus said that's what the Christian life is all about in John 17.3 in His high priestly prayer. He said, now this is eternal life that they, He was speaking of His followers, might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word he used there for know describes a kind of knowing that's experiential. That said, here's my fifth thought, that said, he did make you for a purpose that is based on your individual temperament, your personality, your passion, your gift mix, and your personal history. All of those things taken together will allow you to make an impact that's individual and unique. A sixth thought. However, God is not coercive. He invites, but He's non-intrusive. In my 46 years as a follower of Jesus, I've found that He's the least intrusive person I've ever met. The fact is, you may refuse God's calls, His call to know Him and His call to serve Him. You may refuse it. Scripture indicates that some did. My seventh thought. Why might you answer this call? Here's a couple of reasons. Because he's as good as advertised and therefore trustworthy. You might say, Kevin, you, you say that with some conviction. I do. Because he's convinced me again and again and again over many years that he's as good as advertised. Some of you can finish this Bible text if I begin it for you. Jesus said it, John 14, 9. If you've seen me, you've seen, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. Hmm. The writer to the Hebrews said, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, the radiance of his glory. Paul in Colossians said, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Nikki Gumbel of Alpha fame says, there is no unchristlike feature to God. Do you believe that? You don't, you don't have to believe that to jump through a religious hoop. God would like to convince you of that. He would like to convince you that he's that good. You see, we, we live, especially those of us in the Western Hemisphere, we, we live in a spiritual context 
where many voices say to us that we know what God is like, not primarily by looking at Jesus, by looking around us and seeing what happens, because they can't imagine a God who doesn't control and even micromanage the entire universe. One of their strongest voices, a best-selling author from the Twin Cities, said this, and I paraphrase, if a child is kidnapped, molested, and murdered, God caused that. God orchestrated that. God willed that. We may not know the reasons, but God is glorified even in that. I want to ask you, is that thinking by a leading theologian consistent with the life, the person, the teaching, and the ministry of Jesus Christ? And I will tell you that that thinking, even though it's espoused by sincere people, is monstrous. Please do not assume that you can identify the will of God by looking around and seeing what's happening in life. You see, the belief in the sovereignty of God, which is a very clear doctrine in Scripture, does not require belief that God causes everything. The Bible teaches that other wills are at work in the universe. And though I don't have time this morning to go into detail about this, I will share a little bit on that subject with you. Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives. We read about this in Matthew 23. He's weeping. He cries out. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who murder the prophets and stone those God sent you, how many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers a brood under her wings, but you know what the rest of it says? You were unwilling. How many times I, who was speaking? Jesus. Jesus is who? He's the Son of God and God the Son. What he said always, always, always reflected the mind and the will of the Father. Jesus said, I, I only say what the Father teaches me to say. I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus wanted harmony with the people who had lived in Jerusalem. He wanted unity. He wanted restoration. He wanted healing. He wanted them to experience salvation. That was his will. He said, but you were unwilling. See, the truth is, the difficult, uncomfortable truth is that sometimes the will of man can trump the will of God. The Bible says God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. But some do perish. Some do not come to the knowledge of the truth. Luke 13, we read about someone Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus got into trouble for doing that. The synagogue ruler rebuked him for doing that, healing someone on the Sabbath. How dare he? Jesus' response was, shouldn't this woman, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound these 18 long years, be loosed of her infirmity on the Sabbath? Jesus did not attribute her problem, her physical ailment, to God. In fact, we're told that for this purpose, the Son of God appeared to undo the works of the evil one. In Acts, we're told that Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Isn't it interesting that when bad things tend to happen, we blame God, and when good thing, things tend to happen, we credit luck? Yet John the Apostle writes in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Instead of asking, why did, why did God let that happen? Why don't we say, An enemy did this. The evil one is at work. 
Jesus said of him, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. How good is God? How do I know that God is as good as advertised because he's just like his son? And Jesus never did any of those things. In fact, he met people in their pain and suffering and he lifted them out. Why might you answer God's call? Because he's good. And there's a second reason, because maybe you're tired of playing it safe. Maybe you're ready to join him on an adventure. In 1972, I was a freshman in college. That makes me 65. Freshman in college, I was a Chicago kid, grew up a Catholic, knew some about God. Didn't have a view of God consistent with the person of Jesus. One thing the Catholic Church did that really benefited me was it taught me his law. And the Bible teaches that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is a diagnostic tool. Through the law, I was awakened to the reality that I was a mess. I, I wasn't biblically informed. I wasn't familiar with Romans 7 where it says that sin is so powerful, there are good things you don't want to do and you can't do them to save your life. And of course, that's a paraphrase. And there's bad things you don't want to do and you can't not do them to save your life. That's the power of sin. And that's exactly where I was experientially. There were so many things, good things I wanted to do, I wasn't doing. And some bad things I said I'd never do and I did them. I found myself alone in a dorm room on an evening in March of 1972. I wanted to have a conversation with God. It was probably the first honest conversation with God I'd ever had. I'd offered some formal prayers, prayers I'd learned by rote over the years, but I don't ever remember sharing my heart with Jesus. And I remember saying to him, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm not the person I want to be. Certainly I want to go to heaven, but my primary concern is I, I want you to do for me what I can't do for me. I want to experience your life. And you know what? I met him in a dorm room of all places. Wasn't a church, dorm room in Winona, Minnesota. I experienced supernatural, divine life, got off my knees. I knew something was different. A life has been harder than I ever imagined it would be. Like all of you, I've experienced trouble, pain, suffering, sadness, broken hearts, many broken hearts. But more than anything, during all these years, Jesus has shown me he's always there and he's always available. And he doesn't show favoritism. And his call is an opportunity to experience his life and to join him in an adventure. What I want to say to you this morning is this. Some of you know Jesus experientially. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The Lord invites us to taste and see that he's good. And some of you have. And some of you haven't. And there's no shame in not, not knowing him. But it sure would be a shame if you continued in that state. If you're here this morning and you say, I, I don't know Jesus that way, I want to ask you, would you like to know Jesus that way? And at some point, whether it's right now or sometime this afternoon, and don't put this off, 
Have a conversation with Jesus and say, I want to experience you. I want to experience your forgiveness, your cleansing, your healing. I want to be transformed by you. I want to know that you're as good as advertised. You know, you may have doubts about that, and that's okay. Tell God that. And then also you might say, and God, I understand you have an adventure for me. Abraham began his at 75. It's not too late. It's not too late. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Holy Spirit, I want to thank you that you care so passionately. Like Jesus and the Father, your essence is love. And Jesus taught us that you awaken us to our need for him. Awaken us, each of us, please, now. And awaken us and empower us to respond. In the language of the Bible, grant repentance to us. And would you also help us to be willing and courageous enough to join you on the journey so that we can see you work through us using our gifts, our temperament, our experiences, our skills, our passion. Thank you for the privilege of being able to walk with Jesus. I ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, amen.